Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, and as we look at the gift of prophecy this evening, Holy Spirit, may you fill each person's life right now and heart. Um, we ask that you would be made manifest this evening, however you see fit. And Lord, during our time of worship and prayer, uh, after this time of teaching, uh, we ask that your presence just continues to be here and to minister to your people. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are venturing into this uh, gift of prophecy this evening, just continuing on with the Holy Spirit series that we started a few months ago in looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 12. This gift of prophecy is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10, and simply it's to another prophecy. Now, a prophecy is when God uses his people to share a message from him through his Holy Spirit. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, Peter wrote, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So it's a spiritual gift that is found both in the New and Old Testaments. In the Old Testament, we read of David's gift of prophecy, 2 Samuel chapter 23, verses 1 and 2. Now these are the last words of David, the oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. And Peter confirmed this gift in David in Acts chapter 1, verse 16, when he said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. And we read of the Holy Spirit's anointing of David of the gift of prophecy in Acts chapter 4, verse 25, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. So, we read of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament as well as the New Testaments, and it's clear David had the gift of prophecy. And in reading in the Psalms, David's gift of prophecy, all his writings, it's obviously clear that the gift of prophecy is in them. Now, it's really common to think of prophecy as a word that is telling of the future or, or foretelling, something that is telling the future, which it can be, but that's not all that it is. It's simply a word from God. That's prophecy. So it's not limited by time, whether it be in the present or, or the future. It's simply speaking the truth of God. As we read this in the Psalms of David, some of David's Psalms are foretelling, like the ones that we read about the Messiah, but others aren't, like the ones that are David's prayers or ones that are praise or the ones that give wise counsel. So the question that I think some of us may have is then what, what are prophecies for if it's not just for the future, not telling us the future, what are prophecies for? 1 Corinthians chapter 14 verse 3 tells us what it's for. The one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. So upbuilding, encouragement, and consolation. It's different than the gift of tongues, which we will take a look at in a couple of months. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 2 and 4, For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. The one who speaks in a tongue builds himself up, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. 
Now through this gift of prophecy, God speaks to people and the church for their upbuilding, to build up you and the life of the church in Jesus. And that's one of the reasons for the gift of prophecy, to upbuild your relationship with Jesus. Another reason for prophecy is for encouragement, and we know that Barnabas had this gift. His gift of encouragement falls under the gift of prophecy. It's a prophetic gift, encouragement. And his encouragement actually sprung others into ministry, right? It encouraged others to go into ministry. And people are so in need of encouragement. And we all know how important faith, trust, belief, worship, prayer, study, love, all those areas are to our spiritual lives. But we sometimes don't practice those elements that are important to our spiritual lives for whatever reason. Enter the gift of prophecy, which encompasses encouragement and gives someone or the church hope to have those elements of faith, trust, belief, worship, prayer, study, love, all those things. Now, have you met someone who is just really, really encouraging to you in your faith? They're just a great encouragement. And that is the gift of prophecy manifesting in that person. And I've had many people in my life that God has used to encourage me in ministry during times that I was really discouraged, just encouraging me, inspiring me to keep going, to keep praying, to keep serving, to keep loving. And if it wasn't for those moments of encouragement from those people, I'm not sure if I would be able to continue in pastoral ministry today because there was a time about three, five years ago, that that was just a really, really discouraging time for me in ministry. Now, the third reason that Paul recorded for the gift of prophecy is in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 3, and it's consolation. So upbuilding, encouragement, and consolation. Those are the reasons for the gift of prophecy. Consolation, to comfort, to console others or the church, others in the church. When people experience loss or grief, or pain, difficulty, adversity. It's this gift of prophecy that can bring consolation, that brings comfort. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. We know God is in control, and I want to remind you that He's with you if you're going through a hardship currently, that God is with you. He knows what you're going through, and He's working on bringing you through what you're experiencing, that you haven't been deserted by God. He's the one who comforts us in all of our affliction. And perhaps you've met people with this wonderful ability to console or to comfort, which falls under the gift of prophecy in just these really sad or depressed or weakened states that these people are able to come along you and to console you and to comfort you, reminding us of who God is, a God who's in control, a God who loves us with an unconditional love. And uh, there was a time when I was in a depression, and this was my sophomore year of college, and I don't know why, but I I was in this funk and in this depressed state. And even during that state, I had to keep a GPA uh, in order to continue with the grants and the scholarships I had. And 
and I just lost everything because this depression, I just couldn't study, I just couldn't concentrate, and, and I just lost all this money, and so that was even on top of the depression I was already going through, and I was just going mad. But I had this friend, and she was able to console me that every time we hung out, and every time I was around her, and every time we just go to lunch or just hang out or do whatever, she was able to comfort me and to console me, and it was just one of those moments where thank you, like you have the gift of prophecy in my life. And I'm, I'm so thankful to her. Now, let's head back to the book of Acts to take a closer look at this spiritual gift. We read that David had this gift and next up in the book of Acts is this guy named Agabus. He's the one that created the abacus. And in Acts chapter 11, verse 28, it says this, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold the spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. And so because Agabus foretold of this great famine, he was able to help others and to help the church. That's the gift of prophecy at work. And in verses 29 and 30, it says, So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Now, you go to Acts chapter 21, verses 8 and 11, and you see this example of prophecy in Agabus, again, of foreknowledge, of, of telling the future. And starting in verse 8, On the next day we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. Now, when they say one of the seven, Philip was one of the seven chosen to serve tables in Acts chapter 6 to administer the social aid to the people. And then verse 9 here. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. This verse always stops me because I have four daughters and I hope they prophesy. That would be so awesome. I hope they're encouraging me, upbuilding me, and consoling me and not doing the opposite, especially in their teenage years. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And this is the same Agabus that we just read about, about the, the guy that foretold of the great famine. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentile. So we see that Agabus has this gift of prophecy, and the element of prophecy that he had was foretelling the future, but that's not all that prophecy envelops as we read earlier and looked at earlier because it also encourages consoling, encouragement, and upbuilding. Now, let's take a look at Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. Now, prophecy is one of the ministries in the church to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. Gifts of prophecy are to be exercised in the church. We're not to be silent about them. So let the encouragement flow, let the consolation flow, let the upbuilding flow. And when you have something to say about the future, go ahead and say that and we'll check it out and we'll talk about this a little later. And so we read of this gift of prophecy in Acts chapter 13 starting in verse 1. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menin, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. 
While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So the Holy Spirit, in verse 2, said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them, which was the gift of prophecy at work amongst these prophets and teachers. And then Barnabas and Saul were sent off to their first missionary journey off to Cyprus and all over Asia Minor. Now, Paul is no stranger to the gift of prophecy. He wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14, Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy, when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Now, Timothy was prophetically recognized as a servant of Jesus who would equip the saints for the work of the ministry for building up the body of Christ. And a council of elders recognized this by the Holy Spirit. They prayed for him, laid hands on him. And one of those gifts that Timothy had was the gift of teaching, as Paul continued to write in 1 Timothy chapter 4. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. In practicing the gift of prophecy, we have to keep in mind that there are guidelines to this spiritual gift. Now, one of the controversies that some churches have over this particular gift is that of head coverings. Right? In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 4 and 5, Paul wrote this, Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covers dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. Now, we've had people leave our church over this particular issue. Hence, my hat is there, okay? And so, for me, it has nothing to do with honor or dishonor. It's just a hat day. Right? It's a little chilly. I put a hat on to cover my head. Or if I'm just having a bad hair day, I put a hat on. It's all it is. It has nothing to do with honor, dishonor, and, and none of that stuff, right? And so there was a time that this gal and her friend confronted me about this because I wore a hat while I preached and while I prayed, and my hat was on. And because I did that, they haven't been back, and they were sitting right back there. Now, we've been studying Galatians on Sunday, and I equate that same thing, that religious rule, with what the Judaizers required in regards to circumcision for the early church. It's the same thing. It's just a religious rule. It's enslavement to a law. It's not freedom in Jesus. Because whether you wear a head covering or not as a man or a woman, that's up to you. That's your prerogative. That's your thing. Otherwise, Lisa's the only holy one here. For me, sometimes I wear a hat. But I try to remember to take it off before I preach or I pray because I don't want to cause anyone to stumble or anyone to leave because of just some silly thing on my head. I am not enslaved to that. It's not a big deal for me to take it off. And it's also not a big deal for me to wear it, but it's just not a big deal to me. I'm, I'm free. So whether I wear one or don't wear one, I'm free. And so what I attempted to explain to these people was that this issue of head covering really only applied to the Corinthian church, that it was a cultural thing to the Corinthian church, and this was our ongoing debate, because it wasn't an instruction that Paul gave to any other church, right? You read it in any other epistle. It's nowhere else to be found. 
It was an instruction that he gave to the Corinthian church. Now, why is this? Why is it to the church in Corinth? Because it was an issue that had to be addressed with their church. Now, the takeaway from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is not about head coverings. It's not about guys not covering their heads and women covering their head. That's not the issue. Paul addressed head coverings specifically to the Corinthian cultural context because Corinth was a jacked up city. It was a messed up city. It was full of wickedness. It was a terribly evil city. And if someone were to describe you as a Corinthian, that is not a compliment. Right? That's not a compliment. Right? That's like saying you're from Modesto or something like that. I'm just kidding, math. That would be a way to say to a person that you're immoral. You're foul. You're depraved. Like you're just a messed up, jacked up person. You're a Corinthian. And so it was a way to cut someone down. Like That was not a compliment whatsoever. And so Corinth was known to be this extremely immoral, depraved city. Now why is that? It was a port city. And just like any other port city, they just go buck wild. They just do their thing. It's just like Oakland. Oakland, right? San Francisco did not want the port in their city. Did you know that? And that's why it came over to Oakland? Because they knew what happens in port cities. Go over there. Right? And so that's why they sent it across the bay. And if you trace back the history of the social issues that are associated with Oakland, a lot of it can be traced back to it, this being a port city. So there you have it, port city. Same as Oakland, Corinthian. So in ancient Corinth, on the Acropolis, up on the hill, was this temple that they dedicated to the goddess Aphrodite. Right? Do we know who Aphrodite is? Aphrodite is the goddess of love. Right? She's the goddess of beauty and pleasure, sexuality. That's Aphrodite. This temple was dedicated in this port city. Why? Well, this temple was residence to thousand priestesses who at night they would flood the city down at the bottom and be prostitutes. So priestesses by day, prostitutes by night. And so people all over the Greco-Roman world would go to Corinth to do trade, right? Tradesmen, merchants, like all these types of people, right? Sailors, all these people coming to Corinth. And this place is full of prostitutes. This is their trade. This is what they do. And how did the prostitutes get identified? between being a prostitute and not being a prostitute? Head coverings. Right? So if you were a prostitute, no head covering. I'm available. I'm a prostitute. I come from the Aphrodite temple there. And now I'm here. No head covering. And so a woman in that cultural context didn't have her head covered. And so when someone, a sailor or a merchant or whatever, saw that a woman didn't have her head covered, they'd go up to the person and that's a prostitute. If you had your head covered, you're not a prostitute. You're married or you're doing something else, but you're not a prostitute. The woman Paul wrote to in the letter to the Corinthians, they customarily wore head coverings. It wasn't anything out of the ordinary. This is what the women did. They already knew this. 
that if a woman prays or prophesies without her head covering, it would dishonor her husband whom she's married to because then she would be identifying to those priestesses that came down at night from the goddess Aphrodite's temple to work as prostitutes. Right? So that would dishonor her husband, the person she's married to. But that's not our cultural context. That's not what head coverings mean in our society. So the takeaway for all the churches is the headship that Paul wrote about, but it's not the specific practice of head coverings which was specific to the Corinthian church. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 16 this, If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. No one practices that. It's just the Corinthian church. So Paul's intent was not to make a universal religious church rule for women to wear head coverings and men not to. Okay, Paul did not take kindly to religious rules like this. And he even told the Galatian churches in Galatians chapter 5, verse 12, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Now that was in regards to the religious rule of circumcision. So what would he say about head coverings if we were to do that? I wish those would behead themselves. Get their head off. All right, so I don't think that the practice is biblically warranted, but if you want to wear a head covering, I don't have a problem with it. Wear one. I'm not going to judge you for it. As long as this, I will judge you if you do this. If you attach head covering to salvation, just like the Galatian churches, if they, the Judaizers attach circumcision to salvation, if you attach it to the justification of sin, then we got a problem because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. But if you're just doing it because you feel more comfortable, you think that that's the interpretation of it, and you're not attaching it to the salvation of sin, go ahead. Do whatever you want. Wear it or don't wear it. I don't care. But if you do equate it as a religious practice, as a religious law, and you do attach it to the justification of sin to salvation... There's the door, okay? That's there. There's the door. And so that's exactly what happened to those people. Because a little leaven leavens the whole lump, and I can't allow that in the church. I need to protect the church. And it's the same thing as Paul protecting the Galatian churches. If you do believe that, there's the door. So Jesus said in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Don't go back there. Don't do that again. Right? And so that's just not our church. We're not going to go back to the yoke of slavery. That's not what we're about. And so hopefully if you do hold that, you repent, and we welcome you back. And please don't try to put people back into slavery. Now back to the guidelines in exercising spiritual gifts like the gift of prophecy. We need to keep in mind that God is not a God of confusion. Right? God is a God of order. And when we exercise spiritual gifts like the gift of prophecy, we are to conduct ourselves decently and orderly. Like, that's our manner of how we are to do things. Being aware that, you know what, if we don't, we can freak people out. Right? You can freak uh, unbeliever out. You could freak somebody out that is not familiar with these things. So Paul wrote this about the speaking of tongues and the gifts of prophecy in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, starting in verse 21. I'm not going to go 
too in-depth about the gift of tongues because that's going to be saved for another time. We're going to focus mostly on prophecy right now. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers but for believers. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there's no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all may be encouraged, and the spirits of the prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. So in regards to prophecy, we are to make distinction. We are to separate. We are to learn by discrimination what is being prophesied about. Not just to blindly accept what people say and claim to be prophecy. And so I've had so many people prophesy to me about what I should be doing as a pastor or what the church should be doing. I have to test that. I cannot just accept that. Even if you say, God told me. Well, God has to tell me too. Right? He can't, he's not just going to tell you. It's kind of like the guy that approaches a woman. God told me that we're going to get married. You're nuts. Like, what? You're nuts. God didn't tell me. I'm not marrying you for nothing, right? So we have to see if this is true. We have to see when someone approaches and says, hey, God told me. I have to see if that's true. For me, I mean, I can't just accept that because if God told you, he'll tell me too. He's not going to keep me in the dark. What it can do, though, it can confirm maybe something that you're already thinking about or that you are dealing with. Because a lot of times when I'm mulling over something or praying about something or doing something, and then somebody comes over and shares something with me, thank you. Right? That was confirmation to me. And I will continue to sit with it, and I will meditate and, and pray and be in silence and be alone with God about it. But thank you for that word. So it's not to say don't share those things with me because Albert's always just cynical when someone says God told me. No, I welcome it because whatever you're thinking to say to me, say it. And then I'll just test it out with what God's working out in me because there are some things that God's working out in me too. And if you share those things as a confirmation to me, it will be such a blessing. And sometimes I do the same thing for you. And sometimes I just keep silent. And the reason being is because sometimes my news doesn't do any good. Right, so I was praying for someone about healing, and it was a couple. This was at a conference, and I was praying, and then as I was praying for their healing, because they were both going through some health issues, this image in my mind came up of the wife disappearing. 
and she was gone. And I felt like saying, your wife's going to die. Right? No. No, no. Don't say that. And so the, the next time I saw this guy, which was like three months later, I saw him at a different conference. And I was like, hey, how's your wife doing? He's like, she's doing so much better. I was like, thank God I just kept my mouth shut. Right? Because that would have been so bad. So you don't have to always say what's on your mind. Think about it, you know. And so you notice how orderly the gift of prophecy is. You, you read verses 29 through 33. It's an orderly way to operate. It's not like utter chaos. It's not like craziness. Verse 31. For you can all prophesy one by one. You don't have to all keep like, oh, say this, say that, say this. And it's like this frenzy, like this mass prophecy session. That's not how it's supposed to be. Prophesy one by one so that all may learn and be encouraged. It's orderly. And you don't have to prophesy everything. Just like I didn't have to prophesy about the disappearing woman. Right? Maybe all it meant was like her tumor disappeared or something. Maybe I just misinterpreted. I don't know. But it, the Bible says the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. You can control what you say. It's not like, oh, I can't control it. Your wife's going to die. Right? You can control what you say. You can not say anything. Right? And it's the same thing as tongues. You don't have to go all crazy. I can't control it. i got to speak. Do whatever the things that you say. No, you're wrong. It says you have control. See, God doesn't force us to do those things. The gift of prophecy is one of those spiritual gifts that's Exercise in proportion to our faith. Romans chapter 12, verse 6. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith. Now all spiritual gifts have an element of faith to them. And when practicing prophecy, you have something that comes to your mind that you believe is from the Holy Spirit and then you share those things. And if you want to share that, you share in proportion to your faith. And once you do that, others will test it to discern whether that is truly from God or not. It's not just because you feel that way and you're certain. It has to be tested, right? And so the lens we run that test through is primarily Scripture. We look at the whole counsel of God because we know God will not contradict His Word. So if you say something that is contradictory to His Word, the first test says, no, that is not a prophecy. Because God does not contradict His Word. So the first test we put prophecy through is the Bible test. Is it biblical? Is it in accordance to God's Word? If it's not, it's not a prophecy. Not from God at least. Because the scriptures warn us of false prophets. Not everything that people say who claim to be God-inspired is God-inspired. Sometimes people just are speaking out of their flesh. Sometimes they're speaking out of their caffeine. You know, they're just speaking whatever, their thoughts or their hearts or something that happened to them or their experiences. And they're speaking from those things. But it's not God-inspired. Jeremiah chapter 14, 14. And the Lord said to me, The prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I did not send them, nor did I command them or speak to them. They are prophesying to you a lying vision, worthless divination, and the deceit of their own minds. 
Ezekiel chapter 13, verses 2 and 3. Son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel who are prophesying, and say to those who prophesy from their own hearts, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Woe to the foolish prophets who follow their own spirit and have seen nothing. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. He said in chapter 24, verse 11 of Matthew, And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Matthew 24, 24, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Peter warned us in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1-3, through 3, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Last one here, 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. See, we are to test. We are to judge prophets to see if they are false. Deuteronomy 13, verse 1 through 3. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder... And the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass. And if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. See, a true prophet of God does not contradict the word of God. No matter what signs no matter what miracles they perform, no matter what insights or wisdoms or knowledge they have of your past, if they know your name without you telling them, if they know your driver's license, social security, know how many siblings you have, know the name of your mom and dad, they know all this stuff about you, a true prophet of God does not contradict the word of God. So if they can do all these supernatural things, but they say that Jesus is not the only way to God, that is a false prophet even if they have all this insight about you and they can predict all this stuff about you and tell you all about you and do all this stuff, it's a test. And just because a false prophet has all these supernatural abilities, you still don't have to fear them because that might be a little freaky, right? Well, they know all about this stuff about me. Like They must have these supernatural powers. They must do all this stuff. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 22. When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. Don't be afraid. My uh, maternal side dabbles a lot in this stuff. It's gnarly. All these fortune-telling books and going to palm readers and card readers and all this stuff. And my mom used to do this stuff about me. And she would used to send this tape over to me and say, Hey, I paid this fortune teller several hundred dollars to get your fortune read. Here, listen to it. I, I never listened to a single one. 
but she would tell me what these fortune tellers are saying and they would predict things about me that were true, that I didn't say anything or my mom didn't know about it either and she would be telling me these things. I'm like, have you been talking to my cousins? Like, how do you know about this stuff? And they would be doing this stuff. But the word of God is more powerful. You might be able to do these tricks and all this kind of stuff and tell me things about me that I'd never told you, but the Word of God is powerful enough to withstand any prophecy and to test its validity. Right? Galatians chapter 1, verse 8. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. The gospel is the gospel. The Word of God is the Word of God. It doesn't change. And the ultimate test for true prophecy is the word of God. Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 28. Let the prophet who has a dream tell the dream, but let him who has my word speak my word faithfully. What has straw in common with wheat, declares the Lord. What does this mean? See, we have prophets who tell us their dreams, which can be legitimate dreams, legitimate prophecies. But, not all of us have this gift of prophecy, but all of us have the word of God. And so those dreams that some prophets have, that's just straw. But all of us have the word of God, which is wheat. The stuff that can nourish you. The stuff that is nutritious. Not the dreams, that straw, that it's just nice to chew on. But you can't eat it. Right? You can't consume it. See, God's word feeds us. And we all have that. Many times, preaching is the practice of the spiritual gift of prophecy when I'm up here and, and doing that. And, and sometimes I'm encouraging and sometimes I'm consoling and sometimes I'm upbuilding and other times I'm not, but other times I am. And sometimes prophecy takes time to come to fruition. It doesn't just happen right away. I knew I was called to pastoral ministry over 13 years ago. And at the time, I was an assistant pastor. And at the time, somebody else recognized that in me before I did to myself. So the senior pastor that was here before, the first time that I entered his Bible study, he came straight to me and said, we should start a church together. He didn't even know my name. It was the weirdest thing. And he was like, God told me that we're going to start a church together. I'm like, you're so freaky. You're free. It's kind of like that random guy going to a girl and saying, hey, we're going to get married. I was ready to leave. And I didn't have any desire to go into ministry whatsoever, let alone be a senior pastor, which happened like three and a half years ago. When I became an assistant pastor, I was totally content with being an assistant pastor. And some of you may be like, why? What's so great about that? This is what's so great about being an assistant pastor. You have most of the perks of the senior pastor with no responsibility. None. Right? Because if you do something wrong, he takes the blame. Everyone points to him. Even if you did the wrong thing, you'd be like, oh, he's my senior pastor. And so, oh, yeah, you bad senior pastor. You're terrible. How can you not oversee what's happening? at the? So you can mess up all you want, and you never get blamed for it, but you get all the perks because you get congratulated too. So it's a nice place to be. But then to be called to become a senior pastor, I was not happy about that at all. I did not want it at all. I was so reluctant to take on this role 
but I was kind of like forced into it. I was like thrust into it. And the reason is because when that senior pastor resigned, there was no one here because most of the staff left and most of the elders left. And, and so it was me. And they were like, somebody needs to go there, so you go up there. Like, All right. And so then I started preaching, and then I started taking that role and started speaking in the church and implementing vision and all that stuff, and it just kind of happened. And mainly because there was no one else. It wasn't because they chose me, because they actually wouldn't. It took over two years for them to say, okay, it's him. Two years, are you serious? And there was no pastoral search done, and this is the reason why. It wasn't because they didn't want to. They didn't have any means to. There was no money. So what are they going to offer somebody in a pastoral search? Come take over a church that just got demolished and is losing people rapidly and no income and there's no reserve so we can't pay you, but come pastor a church. Like what are they going to say? So it was just kind of like I was in there and this place was sinking fast because there was no money to pay staff. People were leaving left and right. This was just a horrible thing. And all I thought was, thank God, because in a few weeks, I'm going to be back in Southern California with my family, and I'm just going to restart my career, which I loved, and I'm going to be out of that messy ministry stuff. Not what God had planned. Not what God had planned. And so I remember a few prophetic words to me at that time, telling me that it was going to be me. And that God was going to use me. And I was being encouraged. And I was being comforted. And I was being upbuilt. And again, it's not because I'm special or anything like that. Because obviously I'm not. Because the elders at the time did not want to pick me. For two years. They didn't want to pick me. But they had to because the church was growing and it was getting back on its feet. And the finances were becoming stable. I mean, they had to recognize what God was doing. They had to. And I'm pretty sure that if we had a pastoral search, it wouldn't have been me. Because all you have to do is go back like five years and listen to my teachings back then. They were so much worse than they are right now. They were so bad. And obviously, of course they were. Because when I started that, that was like my 10th time teaching in my life. And people have these huge standards. Oh, he has to be like the previous pastor who preached for like 15, 20 years. And they were equating me, someone who preached 10 times, to someone who preached for 15, 20 years. You can't do that. By the grace of God and his gifts of prophecy in people towards me to encourage and to upbuild and, and console, and mostly console, mostly comfort. That was the biggest thing. Because I wouldn't have been hired. I know it. I know for a fact I wouldn't have been hired if they had the means to do a pastoral search. It wouldn't have been me. And from where we've come that five, six years ago, dead in the water. How many of you were here back then? Just curious. Four? Five. Five out of whatever, 20, 20 whatever. And I think it's a lot different if we took the whole church in terms of percentage. People from that time to now, I would guess it's about 85, 90% have been here less than three years. That's my guess. It's just by the grace of God. Because back then we were talking about dissolving the church. Because we had nothing. 
There was zero dollars. We weren't able to pay any staff. And then five years later, tomorrow we're negotiating to purchase this building. It's mind-blowing to me. From zero, zero reserve, to be able to talk about buying this building, that building, and the parking lot in Oakland, two blocks from the lake. Mind-blowing to me. Only God. Only his prophecy saying like, no, this church is still going to be around. This church needs to keep going forward. And to know what we're going to be doing this is just absolutely nuts to me. And so when looking back at prophecy, that it speaks to people for their upbuilding, their encouragement, their consolation, I know that for a fact. This gift is so true and tangible to me. Because I lived this one. Right? There was no thought of upbuilding back then. None at all. We were talking about just dissolving. It was such a discouraging time. I cried so much during that time. And I felt so alone. And yet there was comfort and consolation in times of my grief that people were giving to me. Granted, there was more grief than consolation, but the consolation was still there. Right, but for the gift of prophecy by the Holy Spirit that sustained this ministry. Amazing. I want to end with something that we already talked about here. Romans chapter 12, verse 6. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith. So how big is our faith? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for working out this gift of prophecy in this particular church. There's no denying this particular gift here. And so, Father, we thank you so much for manifesting it in our church, that we can see the fruits of prophecy, whether it be a foretelling of the future, whether it be an encouragement, an upbuilding, a consolation, all those elements of the gift of prophecy operating here at Regeneration. Thank you so much, Lord. And so God, tonight, as we enter into worship and we enter into communion, as we enter into prayer with one another, and we act in proportion to our faith, this gift of prophecy, may you speak to your church this evening. May you speak through people this evening whether it be words of encouragement, words of consolation, words of upbuilding, words of the future. And may you give people discernment of what to say and what not to say. And may people not be offended that it's not accepted right away because we do have to test it. And so we ask, Lord, for your discerning spirit for the testing as well as the manifestation of speaking your words. In Jesus' name, amen.